rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. All right. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, Bob Hutchins here. And on this beautiful late summer day, seems like it's getting to be fall here in beautiful Nashville. I've got a special guest sitting on the Zoom call with me in this crazy world that we exist in. His name is Jared Bias. If that name sounds familiar, he is a biblical scholar and popular podcast co-host of The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns. Uh, He's been a pastor. He's been a professor. He's been a Sunday school teacher. He's a podcast host. He's an author, speaker, and leader of several organizations. And we're going to talk about today, he's got a brand new book coming out. And it's called Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Living Like Jesus. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm a big fan of the Bible for normal people. Um, There are moments when I listen to that, that it's a huge aha. Um, The latest, one of the late ones that you guys did with uh, Ilio. Ilia Delio. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Ilia Delio (laughs) was fantastic. I've Mm. heard her on other podcasts, but man, that was good. Good stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I've been thinking about that one since we did it too. <laughs> so, so tell me, first of all, where are you calling in from? Uh, I live just outside of Philadelphia. So Pete, Pete Enns and I live, we're 10, 15 minutes away from each other. Okay. Do you guys teach or did you teach at the same college or? No, we would have met, uh, Pete would have been a professor of mine, um, but back in the day at, at Westminster Seminary. Okay. Yeah. So, so he was a professor, you guys stayed in touch and before we jump into the book, talk a little bit about how, how did you guys come together to come up with the idea for the podcast, The Bible for Normal People? Yeah, well, back in 2000, it's, it's been uh, eight years, I guess now. In 2012, he had reached out to me and we collaborated on Genesis for Normal People. So that book actually came out before the podcast, before any of that. So I was teaching uh, philosophy and biblical studies at Grand Canyon University out in Phoenix, which is where my wife is from. We were living out there. And uh, I was teaching out there. He was teaching here. And yeah, we, we put that together um, back, at, back eight years ago. And then I think fast forward a few years after that, I moved back here to the area. And I think it was Pete's agent said, hey, you should come up with a podcast. And he and I started talking about it. And that's it just, you know, the rest is history. So how's that, how's that journey been? Oh, it's been it's been really wonderful. I mean, we both are just very passionate about bringing the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful to be able to talk to and have access to all these brilliant minds and just pick their brains. And it's great. I'm a curious person. So I just come in with my list of eight to 10 questions I always want to ask everybody. And yeah, it's been really great. That's awesome. Well, before we jump into your new book, um, I'd, I'd like to, to know, and as well as I'm sure my listeners, you know, what, what's your background? How did you end up where you are today? I mean, did you grow up in a, in a faith-filled home? Is that something that, you know, you always wanted to be a biblical scholar? Was that something that came later in life? Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I grew up in Texas. So in, at least in my town, in my community, 
everyone was a Christian, you sort of had to opt out. You were born in, and if you wanted to not be considered a Christian, you sort of had to opt out of that. So I grew up Southern Baptist, actually, and ended up at Liberty University. And um, so that was kind of a natural trajectory, although in high school, I started going uh, to a Presbyterian church um, by myself. So, yeah, my, my grandmother is an itinerant uh, Pentecostal pastor, or charismatic. I, I say Pentecostal because people kind of know what that means, but uh, technically just more charismatic, non-denominational uh, minister. So, yeah, definitely grew up around Christianity and uh, was a part of some uh, some church plants and played drums, and so was always very involved. In, and, yeah, I was a closet nerd since I was young, so my goal— when I was in high school, was to get a PhD in presuppositional apologetics. And that was sort of what I had always wanted to do. And that's really just how to argue for your faith, how to defend Christianity against the attacks of those godless atheists and, and all those other people who are out to get us. So that was kind of my, my life dream. And that's what, what ended up uh, us up here in Pennsylvania. I had always wanted to go to Westminster Seminary um, for their apologetics program. And then when I got there, realized that they didn't embody the kind of faith that fit me. And by that, I mean um, just filled with, it was a lot of um, condescension. This is just my experience, but it was a lot of condescension. It was a lot of stay in your head. It wasn't a lot of embodiment. Um, and it just, for me, I just woke up one day and said, this isn't the kind of faith I want to practice. And it just so happened that the biblical studies department, um, which is filled with some wonderful, wonderful people and, um, just really gravitated not so much to their biblical studies or what they were saying, but more to their life and how it seemed to be more embodied in how they walked around every day. And that I really gravitated to. So I just kind of fell in love more and more with the, the biblical text and the biblical studies end of things and just kept going from there. Listening to your story, and I'm going to lead this to the book, but before we get there, listening to your story and some of the things that you've shared quite, you know, vulnerably on, on the Bible for normal people, um, was there a time in, in, in your own kind of faith walk and growth that, you know, you were really challenged with what you believe? And, and I know some of the guests that you have on really, it, it allows you guys to expand and grow in your understanding of faith and God and love and truth and all those things. Is there anything in your story that that was a kind of a watershed moment for you? Um, or was it just a natural evolution of your own kind of curiosity? It's interesting, because I think it's a little bit of both. And I don't, I don't, I've talked to some people who relate to this, but it's almost that I, deep down, I always had a sneaking suspicion this is where I would end up but I wouldn't acknowledge that. I wouldn't admit it to myself. So in some ways, I feel like it's this uh, kind of more my authentic self is just trying to been claw its way out for a few decades. Mm. Uh, but if, if there was a moment, it would have been, oh, probably about 10 years ago, I was a pastor at a, a fairly large congregation. And yeah, it's just one, it's a tipping point. It's just like one day you kind of wake up and say, I just don't think, I believe like this anymore. It, it reminds me of, uh, you know, I think it's Thomas Kuhn who wrote on the nature of scientific revolutions and he talks about paradigm shifts. So if you are, use that phrase, that's kind of where it comes from. And he just talks about how, you know, it's a little bit at a time, but you kind of hold on to your default way of looking at the world, even though it may be chipped away at and you start to lose this piece here and that piece there. And you don't realize that maybe the rug's getting pulled out from under you until one day, like, 
there's a tipping point. And then it's like the whole paradigm all of a sudden doesn't make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would say that happened to me about 10 years ago to where I think it had been happening for several years before that. But all of a sudden I woke up saying, oh, you know what? I just don't think I can pretend anymore. I think I don't believe a lot of the things I used to believe. Um, and that was a scary time as a pastor and um, trying to figure out, you know, how do you how do you change what you believe when your paycheck depends upon you not changing what you believe? And uh, so that was a scary time. But, you know, that faith often is um, a scary time. So obviously you you walked through that um, and you come out the other side. And and I guess that probably leads me leads there's, there's lots in between there. I'm sure we don't have time to go into that. But, but this book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Living Like Jesus. What, wow, timely for sure, um, the time that we find ourselves in. But, but before I jump into the details of it, wh- what, what did this book come out of and what do you hope people walk away with after reading it? Yeah, I mean, it it really comes out of uh, when I was a pastor at that same congregation, you know, 10 years ago, we had a class called Four Skeptics Only. And I taught that class. It was for, you know, again, it was rather large. So we had a number of uh, spouses who they wanted, they liked the family experience of going to church, but they themselves wouldn't have bought it. They probably raised in the church. They think it's good that their kids go, but they didn't really want to sit in the service. So every year, all spring, we would have a, a class for skeptics only, and we would just debate and talk. And I would listen to all the questions that people had. And, and you know, our whole goal was so that people didn't feel like they could, uh, people felt like they could be honest about their questions in church and like God wasn't going to strike them dead or anything. And so those conversations are really, I think, the seed for the book, because we talked a lot about truth in those uh, in those classes, and we talked about love, and and that those are those both of those things came up again and again as things that people were wrestling with. Both love, um, I mean, both truth in terms of like how do we know, how do we know things, truth of science, truth of religion, but also there was a lot of hurt in that room too about how the church didn't love well and how the hypocrisy and how they were good at telling people they were wrong but not so great at sitting with them and in solidarity and being with them in love. And that drove people away from the church as well. So I think that was the beginning of me just starting to formulate uh, my opinions about these things that culminated in the book here. You know, in the beginning of your book, you, you set this premise, which I think is so strong, you know, for years, people who are people of the book, people who pride themselves in absolute truth, who maybe were brought up in the church. There's this, um, there's this saying uh, talking about truth in love and love sometimes, you know, is tough. But you make this premise of saying love feels like love. Can you expound on that a little bit? Because <clears throat> when I read that, it was so... Um, but it's such a powerful statement and it's so simple. And yet we kind of dance around that and we've, we've kind of never really admitted that if love doesn't feel like love, it's probably not love. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, it. and I think that's the, the reality is whether it's evolution or 
all these other things in in this case in particular love i feel like we we could intuit the truth from when we were young and then things start to cover that up and so in some ways i feel like it's it's been a trick we've been deceived it because it, it, it seems so simple if you say it that way like wait a minute shouldn't love feel like love like if i don't feel loved by you and but you tell me that you are loving me anyway i mean i think psychologists would call that just gaslighting like right and i and so yeah i think it's just kind of co- it's it's uncovering it's revealing these things that we've complicated uh, usually as as a way to uh, protect our tr- protect our power or you know all these other things uh, protect the system but i think it is pretty simple and profound to say wait a minute whatever we mean by love the other person should probably have it feel like love. Um, And the other part of that too is, you know, I grew up in a tradition that would have minimized feelings and emotion. Like you can't trust your feelings. Right. And, and so I, I purposely talk about it feeling like love because I think we also need to remember that that's a valid part of being human. Mm, That's good. Yeah. And I think too, Jared, um, that whole statement of love feels like love. It, it, it really flies in the face of so many times, whether consciously or unconsciously, we can justify our actions in the name of love to be able to be unloving or to hurt people or to reject people or to maybe mask my own feelings of hatred that I can be self-deceiving to say, well, you know, Jesus was loving, but he also, you know, turned over the tables and whipped people. That's the most loving thing you can do you know, love, love the sinner, but hate the sin. And yet none of that feels like love at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important to realize in the context of that too, that at the end of the day, two, two important parts of that, of the story is at the end of the day, the, the final word isn't a throwing over of tables, but it's a dying on the cross. Mm. That's, that's the final statement of love. So we can't pick and choose. I mean, we do pick and choose, but why pick and choose that rather than self-sacrifice? But I think secondly, in that context, Jesus reserves his harshest words for those religious people who are in charge, um, almost exclusively. Mm. Jesus's words uh, that we would maybe consider harsh or tough love are almost exclusively reserved for those uh, religious leaders. And I think that's important. What a great point. Love feels like love. Um, another thing that you talk about, another title uh, of one of your chapters is truth is overworked and underpaid. Um, and in that you talk about fact truth versus other kinds of truth. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Yeah. And this came out of, you know, doing a lot of thinking and, and research and work on this idea of truth and realizing we don't. I don't think we know what we're talking about. And when I say we, even even in the academy, I think you, we we, yeah, it's a slippery term. Um, this idea of truth, and yet we use it so like dogmatically and emphatically, but we really have to make sure we understand what we're talking about. And so I talk about these three categories of truth. So fact truths, uh, which crassly are, you know, what would be true if everyone were dead. So what's just out there true objectively in some yeah, objective sense? And then there's meaning truths, which is this relationship between people and facts. 
and how you know we're always interacting with the world and creating meaning out of that. So that's the kind of meaning truth. And then there's this wisdom truth, which is even more abstract, but I would say in some ways the most embodied, which is how do we take all of that and live our lives well? And so, you know, we'd say things like, are you being true to yourself? What does that mean? Are we talking about facts there? No, I don't think we're talking about facts. Are we talking about meaning? Not really. We're talking about this wisdom thing, this navigating the world well. Um, and an authenticity is a is a component of what we would say is living out uh, your life well. So it, it, it helps to help us have a conversation to break it down into these ways, because otherwise we can be kind of ships passing in the night. Um, because some people say, well, is it true that? And I would want to kind of back up and say, well, what, what do we mean by true first? Um, you mean, is that a fact? And, and this comes really practically when we talk about the Bible, because we say, is the Bible true? That becomes a very difficult way question to answer without unpacking these different layers of truth. Right. In other words, is the wisdom of the Bible true? Well, yes. Many times, mm-hmm. yeah. Are mm-hmm. the facts of the Bible true? Meaning that did, did was the world literally flooded and, you know, Noah took literally, you know, did was Jonah swallowed by a whale? Those are all things that you know, are they factually true? Well, we don't know. No one was there and there's a good chance they weren't. But a lot of people say, oh yes, they are factually true because they're written down, right? Well, and more importantly, in the history of the Western church over the last few hundred years, I would even ask the question, why is that the most important version of truth? Why do we put so much weight on that? So it's not even, is it historically accurate or not, but why does everything seem to hang on whether we answer that yes or no. And why have we lost sight of the emphasis on wisdom and living a life well and using facts toward that end? So facts aren't unimportant. You know, it's not that love matters exclusively. It's just that love matters more. That life of wisdom matters more than just getting our facts right. Mm. So you say love matters more. Why does love matter more? Well, I, I feel like, well, in one of the chapters in the book, I kind of make this point that if we're going to say that the goal, our goal collectively is to is to make the world a better place, I don't see how getting the facts right about things leads us there. In mm. in one example I use, I think I use this in the book, you know, the the example of the atomic bomb and, and how sociologists would have studied the effects of that on society it was sort of devastating because all this time we had been having these the industrial revolution and all these advances in technology we were getting smarter and smarter by the minute and yet what what did we use it for we used it for mass destruction and violence and a world war we thought we were the more knowledge we had we were leading to world peace but the more knowledge we had we just built better weapons which led to more destruction so there was a component missing in there and that's kind of what I want to explore is what's this component where I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves to think if we just knew a little more, and I think Christianity has bought into that. Well, if you just had your doctrine right, oh, the reason why you're being a jerk is because you just don't know the right facts. It's like, no, I don't think that's actually true. I've been around a lot of very, very smart Christians that I wouldn't want to imitate my life after. And mm-hmm. so that's what it's been my experience anecdotally that love matters more. 
that's that missing component. Mm. You know, your subtitle of your book is how fighting to be right keeps us from living like Jesus. Um, power again, you're, <laughs> you've got some great one-liners here is, um, and I'm not minimizing your truth at all. All I'm saying is uh, I'd love to, to talk about that a little bit is this whole idea of being right versus being kind and being loving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so applicable today. Who would have thought in, in 2020 that we would have gotten to the point as a society and as human beings that um, we hadn't evolved yet to the point of making love a priority, but it just seems everywhere you turn, it's about um, being right and arguing and proving a point and, you know, being my tribe is the best tribe and, and my, my, my political group is the best group, my religion, my denomination. And so it's all around us, media, social media, news, television, movies. Um, when you do hear a voice that says love matters more, and we do look back on people like Mr. Rogers, or we do look back on people like, um, you know, even, even a mother Teresa, or we look at Jesus, we see people who weren't fighting to be right at all. Mm-hmm. And yet today, you know, we have to look backward. It's so hard. And I'm, ta- I'm speaking to myself, I'm looking in the mirror to really say like, who do we think of today in our society? Who's not fighting to be right at all. Mm-hmm. All they care about is love. And it's really hard to find people and think about people like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you said that beautifully. I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think that's what people, again, it's hard to help people understand that we're talking about a different register. We're talking about a different level. It's not about not standing up for what you believe. And I think that's the mistake we've made is to think that how I do this isn't as important as what I'm saying. And I would just argue, I think it's just as important, if not more important, the posture with which we say our convictions mm-hmm. is speaks volumes. And I can say this as a parent. I mean, I see so much of my kids, whether I like it or not, they don't, they don't listen to what I say. I could say whatever I want. What they're going to imitate is how I show up, how I talk to them, how I give them those instructions. And so that becomes, I think, just as important. Because again, for me, it, it goes even deeper if we want to get nerdy. And we've overemphasized in the West our brains, as our, our minds, as though that's what leads everything that we do. And then when I don't convince someone that I'm right, by yelling at them, I just get more mad because that should work. Like, that's what I've been taught. Like, I just give you the arguments and I call it just giving you the facts or I'm just telling you like it is and you don't aren't convinced. And then I say, well, then you really only have two options. You're either dumb, like you're too dumb to understand what I'm saying, or you're evil, meaning you have a moral reason why you're not going to agree with me. It's because you have something going on in your life that you need to hold on to the untruth or things like that. And I think we have to start recognizing that we are emotional, connected, social beings just as much as we are brains. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, in when I talk about love mattering more, love is also, we're talking about love, but we're also talking representatively about our emotional lives and how that plays into how we hold our beliefs. And if we can do that, 
I think we end up with a lot more empathy. When I talk to someone I disagree with, I think of all of the cost for them to disagree with me. That's a high price. They're at high risk because if they agree with me, that's part of their identity. They, they may lose friends. They may lose family members. They may have awkward dinners. They may have uncomfortable talks. They may lose deep relationships. And I have to, I have, to have grace for that. It's not just changing our mind about facts. We're more, more complex than that. Yeah, that's so good. Practically, Jared, what does that look like and feel like? How can we, I know that's the, one of the reasons you wrote the book. Um, for me, one of the most rewarding things is to sit, or, sit across from the table that, from someone that looks very different from me, that comes from a different background, that might believe differently, and really try to understand and put myself in their shoes and have those conversations. To me, that's very rewarding. It's life-giving, and it's how I grow as a human being. It is how, how do we model that? And what are some real practical steps of someone who, you know, has spent their life and most recent writing a whole book about it? How do we change that conversation? How do we how do we make love the most important thing versus modeling being right the most important thing? Yeah, I think about that in a few different layers. The the deepest layer, which I would call kind of these core commitments that take many, many months, many years to develop. And the first one for me is self-awareness. We have to understand why we're having these conversations. And I think it's a very vulnerable and scary thing to look into. Because if we can know why we're going into the conversation, we can know what we want out of it. And then we can ask ourselves, is that a worthwhile pursuit? Is that a worthwhile goal? Because sometimes our conversations really are about, I want to feel validated. I want to feel affirmed or I want to belong. Um, I want to, you know, or even deep down, I have questions and I'm projecting my own doubts onto you. And so if you disagree with me, it's almost like it's unnerving to me because I'm not confident in what I believe. So all of these things, though, require a deep sense of self-awareness. Otherwise, we start to put our own baggage out there and we don't even realize it. So I think that's one thing is, is practicing self-awareness and knowing why am I going into this conversation? What do I actually want out of this? Then the second is answering that question, working to answer that question in a way that prioritizes love. So when I go into conversations with my mom, with whom I disagree politically on many, many fronts, I have to go into that conversation saying, what's the goal here? Why am I even having the conversation? And it's that I want to feel connected and I want to feel understood, but I also want to understand her not so that I can put a wedge between us, so that I can know how to love her better, how mm. to connect with her better. Yeah. And I don't go into it thinking either one of us are going to convince either one of us of any political standing or religious standing, and that's okay. Um, but if I can acknowledge what I want out of it, and if I can keep that at the forefront of the conversation, that becomes a, a big game changer for me. It's when I lose sight of that. Uh, that things start to get go off the rails. Um, and then there's other, a lot of really practical things, you know, making sure you use I statements. This is something that I've been practicing for years. So don't say, well, this is how it is, or I'm just telling you the way it is, or um, don't you read and you know, and using you language, kind of blame language, but owning the fact that I'm just sharing my perspective. This is my opinion. 
you can have a different opinion. That's okay. Um, But when we start thinking that we're talking about absolutes and I'm representing God or, you know, the, the irony of course is every time I represent God, you're probably representing God too. So what do we do with that? Um, So if we kind of pull ourselves down and realize we're really just talking about our opinions. And uh, I think I say in the book, you know, the, the four most important words of any conversation is I could be wrong. Um, That is, if we keep that at the forefront, that also I think breaks down our, uh, defenses a little bit. So, yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I'm glad that you started with self-awareness. I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, that comes from, you know, just being honest, doing hard work and, and being honestly, just being vulnerable with yourself and saying, you know, what, what is my motivation here? Why am I saying this? Why am I holding on to this? Why is it so important for me to be right in this situation? And if we're really honest and we're able to do that hard work, nine times out of 10, I think it comes down to um, something besides love, something mm-hmm. besides truth, something bes- it's just more about, you know, it, to me, it, it's a basic human um, need to be part of a team and a tribe. And, you know, I love to watch the Nashville Predators hockey. I love to watch the Tennessee Titans. And I will go and scream my head off. And if there's a penalty against my team, I'm going to say, that's a wrong penalty. If the other team gets a penalty, yeah, they, they deserved it. And it's, it's so tribal and basic human instinct that that is the exact same thing that I apply to my politics or my religion or my other thing. It's like, they're wrong. I'm right. My team, rah, rah. Um, rather than saying, Hey, you know what? I really want to understand where you're coming from. Like you said, with your mom, that's so good. That's so good. You know, something else that made me think uh, that what you said made me think of is I really, you know, a big turning point for me was something Paul says, and I forget where he says it, but he says, you know, our enemies aren't flesh and blood, but they're these powers, they're principalities and what I would call today systems. Right. Um, and that's really helpful because I like, you know, we can use that tribalistic thinking to our advantage sure. if we realize that we're on the same team. Right. So when I'm talking to my mom, we're actually on the same team. All of humanity is on the same team. So then who's the enemy? The enemy are these systems, the systems of oppression. Or at the end of the day, usually most people I talk to, we, we want the same thing. We just yeah. disagree pretty fundamentally on how to get there. Yeah. But if we agree on the same thing, that if a team is is a group of people with a shared goal, then uh, then we're on the same team. And if I can reframe it that way, that helps me kind of, I think, short circuit that tribalism that I'm sure is still inside me for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and your point of everybody wants the same thing, I've said that before, even on this podcast, is that the problem many times is that we start with issues and talking points and sound bites that the media loves to use for entertainment. So mm-hmm. rather than saying, I use, I've used this example before, Jared, you know, everybody wants clean water and clean air and everybody wants their grandkids to not have to choke when they go outside and breathe. So we agree, everybody agrees on environmental issues to that degree. But we start with, what do we start with? Do you believe in global warming? Okay. You just pick the most divisive thing rather than saying, 
hey, I don't want to have crappy water coming out of my faucet. I don't, I want to go outside and be able to breathe without coughing. You know, I, I want there to be trees when I go on my walks and I don't want them all cut down. Everybody agrees on that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we all want the same thing, but, you know, we start with polar opposites of, you know, what do you believe about this? Or what do you believe about this? And so maybe not starting at those points, maybe starting with, hey, we want the same thing. Everybody wants their kids to be educated and they want a roof over their head and they want food on their plates. Now let's start from there and say, how can we work together to to move forward? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it can be hard, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you named it, too. I think you nailed it with the difficulty can be we just have these habits, these patterns of communication. And we we get that model, modeled uh, for us in the media and a lot of the information we, we the, the information we consume isn't designed for cooperative and collaborative dialogue around problems that we can solve together. That's not how it's framed, because that doesn't sell ads. Um, it doesn't increase views because it's, you know, not as exciting. But I think that if we could be around those things that help us reframe, like be in those environments, be around groups that reframe those things, that helps us break those maybe deep-seated habits we have. Yeah. One of the other titles uh, of your, of one of your chapters in your new book, I actually reposted this on social media. I thought it was so good. It, it You say, if it doesn't set you free. It's not true. Talk about that. Yeah, that I've been I've been rolling around that concept for a while now, and it comes again from from John eight thirty two, where Jesus says, "You you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." And for me, growing up, I wouldn't say I felt free in my religion. I felt pretty trapped. I felt like there were a lot of rules, a lot of ways to get shamed, a lot of wrong turns you can make. It didn't seem that freeing to me. I was told, maybe again, another example of kind of the gaslighting of like, no, you are free. Like, if you don't feel free, that's really your fault. Right. Um, and, and so I thought, well, Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So do I believe that or not? If I do believe that, then we can flip that verse on its head and ask the question, is Jesus giving us a litmus test, a criteria for truth? Because if the truth will set me free, if I flip that syllogism, if I flip that argument around, therefore, if it doesn't set me free, I can assume it's not true. And so that became a a more liberative for me way of thinking about it. Now, you shall know the truth and it will set you free is good, but if you're in a system that can't define freedom in a way that feels free, to kind of come back to that argument, then this helps us flip it on its head. And so that became more of my guiding light, is to say, okay, does this set me free? Then if not, probably is not true. And it reminds me of what Paul says, you know, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. So test it. Does it set you free? If not, that's probably not good. And if it's not good, it's not true. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a way to back into uh, a conversation I think that I've been having with myself for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes along with the original statement we were discussing, which is love feels like love, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And so if it doesn't set you free, if it doesn't feel free, it's probably not true. Right. Um, And that, (laughs) that opens up a whole can of worms of like, oh, well, this theological or religious belief that I've always told was absolutely true, never, never made me feel good, never made Mm -hmm. me feel free, never made me feel like love at all. Um, and that is that kind of what you're trying to 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 go for. I mean, because yeah. then we can go down all kinds of rabbit trails. Yeah, yeah. And I think the danger, you know, I can already have my you know 12 year old self in the back of my own head, like, well, but you can't trust your feelings. Like, then what keeps us from just saying, well, I feel like going and murdering 12 people. So if that's freedom for you, like, and and I try to head that off in the book to talk about this the perfectionist way of thinking where I, it, there's so much room for gray and for nuance, which is where most of life is lived, between anything goes and only my way goes. And by my way, I usually mean kind of the white dude in the pulpit who's been interpreting the Bible for us for a few hundred years. So there's a lot of room in there. Is it scary? Is it absolute? Is it certain? No, but that's wisdom. Mm. That's that's life. Um so, yeah, I think we can go a lot of different ways with that. But, yeah, that is what I, what I mean um, by freedom. Um, I, I, what I want to do is problematize or start talking more about freedom and love. Like, if someone said to me at the end of this, like, yeah, but what is love? I would say, great question. Let's spend the next two decades talking about that rather than what's truth. I'd, I'd rather not have that conversation anymore. So if you disagree with me on what love is or how love is presented in the book, I'm going to say, yay, congratulations. Let's have that conversation or freedom. Let's talk about those things rather than truth. Let's take the spotlight off of truth for a little bit and talk about these weightier matters of the law, so to speak. Yeah, that's good. And, and what it does too is it exposes things like, you know, the gaslighting you refer you use that term of saying, well, God's definition of love is so much higher than ours. So, because the moment you start to question, well, your, your interpretation of God who is so loving, who, who in many times in the scripture, you know, was said, you, you should take virgins and rape them. You should, you know, smash mm-hmm. babies' heads against the rocks. You should wipe these people out. And then you say, well, God's definition of love is higher than our definition. Well, that doesn't feel like love. And if it doesn't feel like love, then maybe you should say, maybe it's not true that God had anything to do with it. Maybe yep. that was people's understanding of what God was what's doing or maybe trying to say God was on their side when they did these things, Mm -hmm. maybe that's what was written down. Not really that God really said that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, uh, those are the kind of questions. I think those are the kind of conversations I'm looking forward to having. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and do you feel like, well, let me ask this. What, what do you want people to walk away with? What, what would be your definition of success in a perfect world? Somebody read this book, and change their mind about X, Y, and Z. What, what, what do you want people to walk away with? I think there's two things, and, and hopefully I can keep this train of thought so I can remember both of them. But the first one 
it's again, I don't, I don't actually think this is going to change anyone's mind from one kind of poll to the other. But what I really hope is those people who have intuitively known that they should have been following their heart all these years mm. feel like they now have the freedom to do that mm. with reckless abandon, no more needing to justify it, no more needing to feel invalidated or, or, or somehow heretical for that. Um, so that would be that would be a wonderful takeaway. That's a success for me. If I hear stories of people saying, I knew it. I knew since I was a kid that love mattered more, that that was the most important thing. And then I went down all these rabbit trails because that's what I was supposed to do. That would be a success for me. But I think, too, it's that I hear more and more conversations around how do we love well? How do we help people find freedom, including ourselves? And less about, but is it true? I want to I want to sit into a, a Bible study on the book of Jonah, and the first question not be, but did it really happen? I want the first question to be, oh my gosh, how do we love like God loves and call Jonah to love these Assyrian people who have recently wiped out the people of Israel, these enemies of Israel, and now God is calling a prophet to preach repentance and show grace and compassion. Like, how, how is that possible? How do we do that? Like, that would be that shift in the tone and the topic of conversation around the Bible would be a success for me. Mm, that's so good. Um, one of the last questions I have for you, someone who's obviously an author and you've taught, you've pastored, and now you have a platform where you get to speak to a large group of people through your podcast and in your writings, and you get to talk to so many people, variant um, perspectives of faith on your show, the Bible for normal people with what's happened in the world in the last uh, four months, people can't go to church anymore. Most people. Um, and then what's happened in the past, maybe 10, 15 years, where do you think the tide is going? I feel like there's a huge shift, um, a huge paradigm shift taking place, especially with younger generations, but even people who are older, kind of rethinking maybe where they are, where they want to go. And this, this, this idea of love being the most, thing, the, the most important thing and love matters most. Um, and even with what's happening with, with the racial issues in our country and around the world, can you just take a second to just give your perspective and thought as someone who kind of sees, sees a lot of people, uh, a lot of different perspectives, not, you don't just hold or live in a silo of, of one theological persuasion. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few different ways we could talk about that. I think one avenue would be what's the future of the church, which is, I think a, a very interesting conversation. It, it, it's one that, Surprisingly, I have a real heart for the church. I think it it actually still serves a need in our communities. And I, I wish that church leaders would start to recognize more and more how they can serve those needs. Um, and instead of sort of the idea that they're trying to protect some great tradition from the, you know, wiles of the culture who are trying to corrupt it and saying, we have an opportunity to really partner with society who's looking for, you know, in, in the breakdown of institutions, we see a lot of institutions breaking down. And I would hate for the church to 
be one of those institutions that continues to break down rather than reinvent itself and say, it wasn't ever about the bureaucracy or the institution or the dogmatism or the belief set or system. It was about a gathering, right? The, the Greek word there is just a gathering and an assembly of, of people. And so I, I think there's a sociological need for the church in our communities. And I'm hopeful, you know, I get to speak at, at a number of churches through the year and I'm always so grateful whenever those invitations come, not because I need to go speak at more churches, but because I say, oh, there's a church that would have us as the Bible for normal people. That means they're having these kinds of conversations in their communities of faith. So I'm hopeful on that front that I feel like more and more. And when you talk about um, white supremacy and racism in the church, I've been so hopeful with this last, like more and more evangelicals, more and more kind of conservative belief sets are making that turn to recognize white supremacy and how pervasive it is and that black lives matter and these kinds of things to hear more conservative voices get on that bandwagon because there's frankly nothing within the belief set of conservative Christians as a belief set that would preclude that. Um, That's more of a choice that's been made uh, to kind of identify and put those together. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think I'm, I'm hopeful for the church because there, there has been a huge shift. And I think we're close to, I keep saying that, I've been saying this for 10 years, but I think we're close to a tipping point where the default paradigm of a faith community is one that cares about social issues, that cares about uh, things bigger than you just get a ticket for when you die so you can go to heaven. Yeah, that's good. Well, Jared, I want to thank you for taking the time. And um, how can people get a hold of uh, of you and read your blogs and get your books? Is it jaredbias.com? Yeah, jaredbias.com um, or lovemattersmorebook.com. Um, either one will get you to the book for sure. Okay. And it's J-A-R-E-D-B-Y-A-S.com. Correct. Yep. And uh, when does the book come out? The book releases uh, September 8th. So we're, yep. It's coming out soon. Is there an audio version of it? Coming? There will be, yeah, and it will come out the same at the same time. So I, I have uh, two weeks ago. I have you know six to eight weeks of stress to prove it. <laughs> nothing like nothing like uh, reading your own book out loud for yeah, yourself to I hear. Lo- I love when the authors read their own books. I love it. I, I like it much better than some boring actor sometimes. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. I can give it that nuance that it deserves. That's great. That's great. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for being so vulnerable and honest and, um, you know, just, just the, the thoughtfulness and the reason that you put behind so much of your work. I really enjoyed that. I know I don't know you very well, but on listening to your podcast with, with Pete, you always ask very insightful, thoughtful questions. So I want to uh, thank you for that. And I'm, I thank you for this book. Um, Mm. I hope that it, really gets people thinking and at least having those conversations. I hope people start book groups around it and really try to try to think through um, this whole idea of love should feel like love. And if it doesn't set you free, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I love those. I love those thoughts. So thank you for taking the time to write it. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. All right. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.